0: Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert
1: good morning you're listening to museum life and I'm Carol Bosser thank you for tuning in today and before we get started I just wanted to mention that a couple of days ago I received the May counts uh, that tell me who's listening and where they're listening from uh, what what the most popular shows have been during that month and I just wanted to give a shout out to the uh, many many listeners who are listening literally from around the world including uh, several people in Sri Lanka in China uh, Iran and Pakistan uh, it is really humbling to uh, to know that that people from around the world are tuning into the show on a regular basis uh, that you find it uh, interesting and uh, enjoyable and it really reminds all of us that museums and the importance of, of uh, working with, with communities and uh, protecting and caring for our, our collections really is international and uh, is global and transcends all, all geopolitical boundaries. So, thank you so very much for continuing to support this, uh, this show and my endeavors. Well, today's show is entitled Engaging Diverse Audiences – And uh, as many of you know, I started my museum career at the Newark Museum in Newark, New Jersey. I was fortunate to work with many wonderful people there, including uh, the uh, Newark public schools and several community leaders, uh, several churches in the area, to develop science education programs for African-American audiences in Newark and the surrounding area. And I learned many, many important lessons in working with that community, uh, lessons that I was able to apply uh, when I uh, uh, took a job in Baltimore and, again, was working with Baltimore uh city public schools, as well as others in Baltimore County, in developing a series of laboratory, of science laboratory uh, programs, and trying to increase interest in uh, science uh, through uh, these, uh, uh, some of these audiences, and however... One of the things that I have learned over the years, and I and our guest today will even, uh, I'm sure, teach us more about that is as. Lessons learned from one, uh, one, working with one community and one audience uh, don't necessarily translate uh, effectively into working with another audience. Uh, as we've said on the show before, audiences are not apples. Every group of people have different needs, different interests, different uh, expectations, and we can't... Uh, just assume that something that worked once is going to work again. And so I am thrilled to have on the show today Cecilia Garibay, uh, who I have followed her research for many, many years, and it has really informed my practice. Uh, Cecilia is the principal of the Garibay Group a multicultural audience research and consulting firm that provides research, evaluation, and strategic consulting services to museums and other cultural organizations. Uh, Dr. Garabay regularly consults with institutions on audience development and community inclusion, and she brings a bicultural, bilingual perspective to her work and specializes in culturally responsive and contextually relevant research and evaluation. Her research focuses on exhibits and programs and informal learning environments, particularly those aimed at reaching underrepresented audiences. And uh, Cecilia, welcome to the show today. I am so thrilled that uh, we have this opportunity for you to uh, share your research and insights. Thank you, Carol. It's wonderful to, to be with you today, and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Great, well, one uh, question that I ask all of my guests, because I think it helps uh, ground our listeners uh, into then the context of what you're going to be sharing today, could you please uh, share with our li- listeners a little bit about your career trajectory, uh, particularly what experiences helped shape your current practice and area of interest?
2: Sure. Um, and it's interesting, as I reflect on that question, I realize that it's really a combination of very much a personal lived experience, um, as well as some more traditional work experience. So it's interesting to to sort of reflect on the fact that these, these two come together. And by that, I mean that um, I think I'm very deeply shaped by um, being an immigrant. And so I came to the United States. Um, as a young child, I was about ten years old, and so at that point experienced uh, what I think of as uh, the world of immigrants. In the sense that I did not speak English; was not my first language. Um, I had already been both acculturated into a very particular kind of, of of culture, and of course had gone to school and so forth, and had these very early experiences that shaped who who I was. And so I, I can I can still to this day remember my first. Um, year in the United States and just sort of the the interesting way in which everything felt new and at the same time could sometimes be scary and and just even learning the language. right? So I think that that, I I often refer to that because I do think that that was um, something that was very critical in shaping uh, the kinds of things that I became very aware of and attentive to um, as I moved into exploring different career options. Uh, in terms of a more traditional career path, I actually started doing research and evaluation work in the social service nonprofit context, uh, doing work, for example, looking at community health issues. Um, and that was very exciting, very similar in terms of looking at um, different populations and engagement and what kept for example certain groups from accessing wellness care and so forth and that was really in many ways my uh my learning ground for much of the research and evaluation sort of real skill set on the ground um And then after that, I I wanted to try the other side, so moved to a corporate foundation and worked uh, as a program officer for a a large corporate foundation, but did a lot of work as essentially a program officer working with many nonprofits, including cultural institutions, um, in helping them think about um, the audiences that they were working with and how they were going to be looking at assessing um, their success and impact. So that brought in that dimension to it. Um, Around the time that I was working at the corporate foundation, I decided that I really needed to do something um, just sort of on my time off and decided that I needed to do some different kind of volunteer work than I'd been doing. And because I'd been raised as someone who went to museums, I thought this is a perfect opportunity. There's a place down the block. From where I lived at the time, uh, which was at the time the Chicago Academy of Sciences, which is, um, now part of the, uh, Peggy Notabart Nature Museum. Uh, and that's where I learned a lot about museums, uh, from the inside perspective, um, outside of just being a visitor. And the museum at the time was small enough that I did everything from inventory at the stores to working on Saturday afternoon, uh, and Programs and overnighters with kids to family events on weekends, and so it gave me a really interesting perspective. And actually, as, as being a docent on the on the um, museum floor as well, and so that gave me a really um, different perspective. Around that time, I realized, you know what, I love museums, and much of the work that I'm doing and many of the skill sets I have are actually part of this field called visitor studies that I had never up to that point, heard of before. And so that was the start of, um, of where I began my work, and particularly one of the people that was really um, seminal in that path was Deborah Perry from Zalinda Research, who was the first person that I actually encountered doing visitor studies work, and I began doing some work um, on projects for her, and that's, that's really how I got into the field. Within that, uh, as I began really working in the museum field, that's when I began, that's when my worlds came together, I would say, because all of a sudden I began to look at um, the visitorship of different museums and even going to AAM and seeing who was there and who was not really did begin to raise questions in my mind about not just the, the role of museums, but who was being engaged by museums, both, frankly, on the professional side and on the visitor side. And so that began, I think, my quest at that point to learn as much as I could about what the museum field um, was doing or what we knew about uh, the history of museums and traditionally how they had or had not served communities and where we were at that point and what it meant for the future.
1: Well, we are... Thank you for that. And we are certainly, as a field, and, and as I said, uh, uh, speaking personally, I am thrilled that uh, your trajectory led you to the museum world because it is so clearly needed. Uh, uh, it is very challenging uh, for so many of us who are uh, not uh, immigrants or not from traditionally underserved audiences, uh, to really understand what it's like uh, to be to be a different audience, and I think inadvertently uh, we make a lot of mistakes and say say and do a lot of things that. Uh, uh, maybe are for the good good reasons and with good intentions, but fall flat, uh, and then everyone is sort of left uh, uh, left wondering and scratching their heads and uh, wondering why why things didn't work out. You know, I was struck. You you sent me several articles. Uh, uh, one that you wrote uh, in two thousand and eleven for Dimensions magazine. that's the publication of the Association of Science and Technology Centers, where you were talking about the uh, challenge of, of focusing on non-museum goers and you referenced two uh, articles, one by Molly Hood that was published in 1981, which was sort of an overview of of uh, asking uh, why certain uh, why certain groups, Um, in a small community in Ohio didn't go to the local art museum. And then there was another study that was done by John Falk in 1993 about uh, African Americans and, again, looking at why many African Americans uh, chose not to go to museums or, or didn't have museums on their radar. But what really struck me, Cecilia, was those were the only two studies why? Why has this area of research been? Uh, why is there such a paucity of research in this area? Well,
2: Carol, that's a very good question, and I had the exact same reaction um, early on as I was looking uh, very desperately for articles. Um, at the very beginning of my um, entry into the museum world as a professional. Uh, and there are a number of reasons that I think that's the case. I think that there has been um, certainly wonderful documentation and, and wonderful articles and books written about just the history of, of museums in the United States. And I think that that gives us a, a, a real grounding for understanding that there are many issues with um, some of that early history that, that, that still resonate today, You know, where there's still reverberations from um, things like museums being um, the knowledge keepers, uh, museums being places of culture that people come to, to to be refined and so forth. And so there is a little bit of that. I also think that generally speaking, it's uh, been much easier, certainly in the visitor studies world, for us to study the people who come to museums and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it's important. And we've learned lots by doing that. So, so I want to emphasize that, but at the same time, by focusing on who comes, we haven't been as good as asking the question who doesn't come and who does not. And so I think that that is an area where it, you know, into the mid nineties, those were the only two studies that had actually been done with any kind of rigor um, and that had been done with non-museum goers. I think since then the conversation um, happily has been broadened and I see more and more dialogue and more and more um, interest in doing some very specific research studies. And I also want to clarify that it doesn't mean that there aren't many articles out there that, about the issue of the need for engaging diverse communities or that question the role of museums in communities at large and um, via that lens raise questions about who is and who isn't included. But in terms of research specifically, it's, we're still at a very, I think, young period uh, for museums about what we do and don't know about the broad range of communities that have traditionally not been represented within our audiences.
1: I think that's a very that's an important clarification, Cecilia, and thank and thank you for making it. Uh, I want to uh, move on and and uh, have you share with our, our audience uh, a little bit about your work focusing on Latino audiences, and then we'll come back around to some of the others. But before we do, uh, we need to take a short break, uh, and we will be we will do that right now. I do want to remind everyone that you can reach Cecilia uh, on her website, uh, Garabay Group. And she also uh, tweets uh, at at Garibay Group. Uh, So I am sure that as you continue to listen today, you will want to follow Cecilia uh, and her uh, uh, new insights as she continues her research. But for now, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Museum Life with Carol Bossert. We'll be back in a moment. (music)
3: the internet's number one talk station number one talk station Voiceamerica.com.
4: conservation starts with us learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to our wild world with host ellie weiss our show centers on africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife ecology and ourselves However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really
3: fast all the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com
0: you're tuned into museum life with carol bosser to reach our program today please call 18664725788 that's one 472 5788 Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Mm.
1: Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert and I am here today with Cecilia Garibay and we're talking about her uh, very interesting research and research results uh, about engaging diverse audiences. And Cecilia, right before we went to break, uh, we had been talking about, we were just getting teed up uh, to talk a little bit about your your work. Uh, Much of your work uh, has focused on Latino audiences and so I would, I would love for you to just share with our listeners what you've learned about these audiences and their perceptions of museums, uh, what they value, and then how museums might use this information to develop more effective outreach efforts towards these Latino communities.
2: Sure. Thank you, Carol. And I think I'll start by first um, one of the caveats I always um, uh, make sure that is very upfront when I talk about any of the research is that we really need to ground it in terms of understanding what segment of a particular community you're talking about. and And that is one one area that I think is very easy to to um, overlook um is that within any community, of course, there's going to be quite a bit of diversity. Some of it is in terms of the kinds of things we think about, socioeconomics, education, um, country of origin, et cetera. But, of course, there's also things like generational differences. So I say that because I think it's really important when we're talking about, certainly, the, for example, the research that I'll share with you momentarily, um, it's it's good for us to ground ourselves in who were those participants, right? Not every Latino is the same. Not every Latino community is the same. So I think that that, that is um, one caveat that I want to make sure um, – I'm clear about with you simply because the the Latino community in the United States is of course quite diverse. It represents more than 20 countries. It includes, for example, both U.S. born and immigrant residents. You're going to see a huge variety in terms of socioeconomic status and levels of acculturation and education um, and generational um, differences as well, as I mentioned. So those are all the pieces. The work that I uh, have been primarily focused on, um, revolves around, uh, work with Latino, uh, families primarily. So while, while some of our research has involved, um, more young professionals and even Latino teens, uh, the, the bulk of the work that I'll be talking with you today about is the ones with families, which of course, um, that in itself, right, gives you, um, uh, a sense of the population in that you're talking about um, adults with children. There's a way in which um, family uh, is clearly the social group that is often in question and so forth. So the reason that I began to do that research was really based on both Molly Hood's and John Falk's um, articles that you mentioned earlier. You know, there were pieces about it that intrigued me because of the kinds of findings they had, which were that they, there were differences that they were seeing between visitors and non-visitors, at least in, in uh, Molly Hood's work. Uh, but then in John's study with African-American community members, um, there were some ways in which the, his findings echoed Hood's studies and ways in which his findings um, seemed to contradict her work. And so that was just, of course, as a researcher, um, the primary to look at. And so I became very interested in this question of what do we actually know about both um, the perceptions of museums for museum goers and non-museum goers uh, and within the Latino community, well, what are the values uh, that influence leisure decisions that may come to bear on uh, their decision to engage or not engage in museums. So that was the, the, the questions I had were really about this leisure choice time, which is very clearly influenced by Molly Hood's early work. Um, and then this bigger question uh, that we I don't think we knew the answer to, which, what are the, their perceptions of museums? So that's where a lot of the work, my early research work began, and then just began building from there. What was really interesting to me is the ability to be able to look at what I'm call, what I call leisure values, these um, reasons that people make um, decisions about where to spend their free time and how, knowing that of course we all um, have not only different levels of leisure time, but um, for most of us, it's a pretty precious commodity, and so we have to make choices about where we Spend our time and so really digging into those values was a key area and the, the two pieces that I'll share with you is that there was a way in which the families that we in our research studies that we spoke with that um, really highlighted the importance of family as a unit um, and the social dimension of leisure was so critically important that families talked about not only the way we might think of for museum goers of museum going as a social experience, but the way they often talked about it was as uh, leisure outings being about being attentive to their family needs, about nurturing family unity, about um, building uh, family cohesion. Um, And so it was really interesting to see often how much leisure was talked about from that perspective. And so often um, the, other, the other interesting finding was that for those families, for those parents who were in low, lower socioeconomic situations, so for example, parents who, had, who were working six days a week <clears throat> or who had shift jobs that meant that maybe they didn't have traditional Weekend um, days off as often as possible, that um, sense of fostering family unity was even much more heightened um, and informed their leisure choices far more than in families that had a little bit more um, freedom within their social uh, within their leisure time. The other piece that I thought was particularly interesting and relevant for museums was that when they talked about leisure choices, there was a way in which they characterized them in terms of uh, the benefits that might be accrued from engaging in a particular activity. So although, for example, relaxation was was important, right, there are ways in which um, understanding the the bigger benefit um, of an activity was part of the, choice, the, the way that families made choices. So to give you an example, um, engaging in a sport might be, a, might be characterized as being uh, physically nourishing and important in terms of one's body and health, while going to church or church-related events might be described as providing spiritual nourishment. So that gives you a sense of this idea of, of benefit. Um, and education turned out to be um, of particular worth. So respondents in um, our research really highly valued those leisure activities that they perceived as very educational, especially if it was um, for educational for their children. So all things being equal, um, an activity that was perceived as being educational. Um, against one that you know that was the only differentiating factor, they would more likely select one or say they would select one that had where they perceived that educational value. So I think that that had some really interesting implications for museums. Um, but what was but the other piece I think about education that might be worth mentioning is that um, education was defined far more broadly than I think. At the time, I was thinking about education. So I think the way that we as museum professionals think of education is in some broad way either about content knowledge or about exploring ideas or about engaging with particular skill sets and so forth. And um, in that realm, you know, we do think of it, I think, very bounded in terms of, of uh, some form of learning or exploring content. And when we talked with parents in this research, um, the Latino parents about education, what became really clear when, when listening deeply is that education might include things like fostering moral development or teaching their children social norms and social values. And so, education had a very slightly, I would say, a very different dimension than the way that potentially we traditionally think about it within a museum context.
1: That's that's really very interesting, uh, Cecilia, and I and I think that that bears repeating uh, again. That that. Uh, Unfortunately, sometimes within the museum, we are gauging our success based on our desired outputs, as you say, if, if we're focused on, on certain content information or or, or certain uh, uh, changes in, in ideas or ways of thinking, you know, very cognitive uh, uh uh, outputs, where, where it's sounding as if you're saying that, that with these Latino families that you were working with, they uh, automatically saw the museum or, or another leisure choice activity as something that would benefit their, their family's broader education, which was, you know, we might, as, as museum professionals, we might consider secondary, they're considering primary.
2: Exactly, and so for example, where I think that this, this, what I got excited about when I realized this was both a o, oh, you know, maybe we're thinking about this um, very, very narrowly or too narrowly, and then I think the second piece is that it, in my mind, <clears throat> opened up many possibilities for uh, museums and cultural institutions to be able to support and share families in their own agendas around leisure. So, for example, um, something that allows both the immediate family, children and adults, but even in in Latino families often, um, and I think in other cultural groups we've been learning as well, um, the extended family is very important. So you may include aunts and uncles, grandparents, in some cases even the neighbor is part of your um, sort of broader family, right? So all of a sudden that idea of uh, accommodating a bigger group because they have these very specific ways in which they're thinking about education, about maintaining family unity, about the benefits of a particular activity in which they're about to engage, if we as museum professionals can, can broaden our own perspective and look at these many dimensions of what is important to different audiences we we actually have many strengths i think to offer within this broader way of thinking about leisure
1: well, I think what's what uh, what brings that home for me as well is in in thinking about activities or how exhibits are structured. For instance, uh, you know, oftentimes as exhibit developers, we talk about uh, we want to design a, an activity so that the quote family can gather around it. But what we really have in our minds are two stools in front of a kiosk, which works really well if you're visiting in a museum with and your family happens to be one child and one parent. Uh, if your family, and you need to keep that family together because it's a shared experience, happens to be, as you say, you know the, the what we would call the nuclear family, plus an aunt and uncle, plus a neighbor, plus someone else, then that whole way of thinking about designing for a group would have to change.
2: Right, and I think it's both in terms of... Um certainly just the size of the group that we think about, but also in terms of thinking about the even something like the range of, of ages and the range of where people are in their both um, interest and cognitive development and so forth. So you may have within a group um, someone as young as five years old and someone as old as in their 80s, if you're talking about um, grandma. And so I think that there's this way in which um, we could certainly be thinking about groups that way to help us really develop or think about the, the user and the visitor experience a little bit more deeply. Um, I think in our minds we often have um, a very, um, what, I would, what I would say, a very traditional um, American nuclear family as the structure of who we're designing for. That's, that's our reference point. And that may or may not be the case.
1: Yes, uh, I, I, I can, I can imagine that. I can imagine too. Uh, you know, often we, we talk, we look at our, uh, our, the images that we use to represent our institution. And we might have uh, you know, whether it's online or whether it's a you know it's a brochure, um, perhaps a membership brochure, and oftentimes you know there's a sort of a matrix of images, and and it's all, there seems to be a formula. We have three images of the objects that represent our collection, and then we have three images or four images of people, and oftentimes those people, notwithstanding their their uh, uh, their their color which can, can uh, tip you off to see if the museum really wants to bring in other people uh, beside you know, a certain group. But also, often we will just have a picture of a single person maybe looking at an object or smiling and 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 all those are really wonderful but it sounds to me that what you're saying is if I if I was a museum director or a marketer and I wanted to make sure that my that the Latino families in my community saw that this was a place that I wanted them to come that I that that this was a place for them I might have a photo of, the family group, doing something or or looking as if they were talking to each other and enjoying their, their family unit. You know, it's these subtleties that become extremely important.
2: Exactly. And, it, you know, your comments remind me of... Uh... Uh, one of the studies that we did at the at Brookfield Zoo, the part of the Chicago Zoological Society, and we, we actually did some work with them, both with the Latino community and then a separate study with um, African-American families. And there were a number of things that, that struck me um, about that related, I think, specifically to to marketing and membership. One of the things we learned from that study is that, for example, their direct mail materials tended to emphasize um, the animals, because, of course, that was why you would go to a zoo, right? It's front and center. That's your living collection. So there were animals there, and it, they would have photos of, as you said, one or two individuals or very much a nuclear-looking family, but, but it was primarily focused on the collection. One of the things we learned was actually that um, that overemphasized the collection over the social dimension. Um, and it also did not cue vis, uh, potential visitors that this was a place for them. So when we looked at the leisure values uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the things that the marketing department at, at the zoo did was begin to uh, change the kinds of images that were being introduced in the direct mail So it emphasized more of the family um, as part of the experience. So it highlighted the social dimension. It also highlighted the educational value for children. And, of course, you saw many more diverse families portrayed. Um, We learned from the African-American community study that membership was also an area that was important. Uh, one of the things we learned there, for example, was that there were often families um, that also had m- kids, broader, larger uh, number of children, often kids that spanned broader ages than you might in the um, sort of quote-unquote quintessential two point five kids right so that you had uh, rather than say a four uh, eight and a ten year old you might actually end up having uh, someone who was eight years old and then you might have kids in the in their mid teens uh, and so that created a very different kind of dynamic in terms of a social group and the needs of the group but we also found that there were families who told us that The um, two parents were not living in the same household, but they were nonetheless co-parenting and so might do many things together um, or might also just share leisure time in a different way. And where, where that became an issue was that in traditional memberships, there was one address that was the primary address of your membership, of course. So if you didn't happen to have your membership card, you could show something that had that address on it, and they could look you up, and you would get into the zoo. But what we were hearing was that there were families in which people were sharing a membership. They really were co-parenting, but there were two different addresses. And so all of a sudden, that became a real eye-opener to the way that membership was structured and it was, again, oriented very much around quote-unquote traditional family structures and, and really began to um, have for us really begin to illuminate some of the subtle assumptions around something like family structure um, that made a difference. consequently, the, the organization, the, the zoo, shifted their membership um, structure based on
1: that. Interesting, very interesting. We are going to take uh, another short break, and when we come back, Cecilia uh, is going to talk a little bit about her research and and, uh, other lessons we've learned about bilingual labels and also uh, being able to speak uh, and and evaluate and uh, gain insight from uh, communities uh, using a a language other than English. So we will be back in a moment uh, with Cecilia Garabay, and talking about uh, audience diversity and engaging them. Uh, You are listening to The Museum Life and this is Carol Bossert. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a moment.
3: Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Think of the world.
4: and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety.
3: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at Verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Welcome back, this is Carol Bossard, and I'm here today with uh, Cecilia Garibay and we're talking about engaging uh, diverse audiences and particularly her research that is helping us uh, really question some of our basic assumptions both inside and outside of of the organization and Cecilia we've been talking about Latino families and and the research that you've learned uh, when what you've learned about that community and how it can uh, be applied to to uh, museum practice. I'd like to shift gears just a tiny bit uh, and talk about your research and your insights into the role that bilingual labels and bilingual oral uh, 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 presentations uh, uh, fit into into this uh, uh, into this outreach uh, issue.
2: Sure, and um, you know, this is obviously, I think, a, a pressing question for the field. And um, before I launch into, I think, some really interesting findings from a more recent study, I think to, as, as museum professionals, we do have a number of, of clear concerns. First of all, we live in a very um, diverse uh, set of communities in which more than often, one language is spoken. It's not it's not often just Spanish. So often, the question comes up: Well, you know, if we do it in one language, what about other languages? And then often, the other question related to that is: Well, um, in terms of budget, how much how much is enough? And so, I do think that those are legitimate questions that we need to be thinking about. Uh, but I think that there are broader ways in which we first need to understand. The role and function of uh, bilingual or multilingual labels and materials uh, in order to, to make those kinds of decisions. So one of the studies that I'm very excited about um, is the National Science Foundation um, Bilingual Exhibit Research Initiative, BARRY for short, that I co-led um, with three other colleagues um, that looked at how families... Uh, Latino families engaged with and used uh, Spanish-English uh, resources, so bilingual resources, primarily labeled, within exhibits. And so this was a study that was conducted across four institutions, um, and we did a lot of observing of the way that they used bilingual labels and then did follow-up interviews. One of the most fascinating aspects, of the study for me was to actually see what families did. And two things I'd love to share with you about that. One was that almost all the families actually accessed both language labels. So, for example, they accessed both the English and the Spanish. So it wasn't exclusively one versus the other. So it wasn't because families identified as uh, primarily using Spanish at home or primarily using English at home, that they only used one. There was actually what we talked about as sort of co-use of both. And the other piece was the amount uh, of code switching that happened for families as they were in the middle of uh, their museum exhibit experience. And by code switching, I mean that they switched languages, often midstream, or um, and sometimes mid-sentence, during their interactions. And there was a way in which I think that that just illuminates the complexity of language, and has for me, really shifted uh, what we can point to in terms of how bilingual families actually engage and use resources uh, within the context of an exhibition. So it's fascinating to see that um, what I think we ultimately learned from the observational data is that we need to, we typically think of bilingualism um, as an on-off thing. You either speak English um, or you don't, uh, and you may speak Spanish or you don't or whatever, and and there are some of us who would say, oh, you speak both, and it becomes very much an on-off kind of Thinking, But what this study, I think, helped us understand is that, is that language is far more complex and that we need to think about bilingualism um, as much more of being on a continuum. And because it's on a continuum, that means that the way someone may access information in an exhibition uh, might actually mean that they need and want to use both that having both accessible is really important not only for an individual but also for the family group. So, for example, we also saw many instances where uh, one person in the group might be accessing uh, the information in one language and someone else in the group might be accessing uh, the information in the other language. And so there was a lot of what I think of as co-reading of the two um, and then coming together and talking about it. So it's fascinating to watch. And I think it, says, it, it, it sort of just shifts the conversation in my mind about the way we think about some of these issues around language
1: I That is wonderful. Uh, very, very good information. And, and again, it also has a lot of implications to uh, exhibit designers and graphic designers who, uh, certainly some projects that I've been involved with, we've always thought we needed to separate the language as far apart as possible, uh, as as you say, because it was this on-off switch. And I never really thought about it that way. We were probably doing a great disservice to the communities that we were hoping to to reach, and I and I bring that you know just as a tale uh, to myself about how we need to constantly be questioning our uh, you know held assumptions about how the world works. So, uh, Cecilia, we've got just a you know maybe about five six more minutes, and I really want you to talk about um, where do we go from here? You know, so so you and and. Uh, uh, some others are now beginning to give us some really good research information and some solid data. What do we do with it?
2: You know, Carol. One of the things that um, I feel really privileged uh, to be in a position where I work with many museums across the country um, who are who are trying to engage deeply in conversations with community about about these issues and, and thinking about serving. Uh, diverse audiences in their particular um, city and so forth. And one of the things that I think that has helped me also understand is how critical it is for our museums to, to look internally. Um, Often I think when we've talked about engaging diverse communities, we think about it as museums reaching out, right? And, and often things like, oh, if they only understood our resources or, or, or maybe we just need to understand what they're about and, and get them in here and so forth. But, but I think that is shifting. And one of the things I think of actually, one of the, the tenets um, and cornerstones of being able to become an organization that is really in a position to reach and serve the broad range of communities um, is really about cultural competence and looking internally at an organization's own sense of cultural competence and thinking about uh, serving diverse communities as a dialogue between that. It, it requires as much internal reflection and thinking about organizational change as it does um, being in dialogue with communities and reaching out from that more uh, traditional perspective that, that we've taken. And I don't think we've done a lot of that yet. I think the organizations that I see that have really uh, made deep shifts and begun to really, in a very deep way, engage communities that have been traditionally underserved are those that have also started to take that view of understanding that they need to look internally at their own practices, at their own assumptions, and begun to wrestle with sometimes difficult uh, questions um, within their organizational uh, dynamics and perspectives and so forth. So, for example, you may end up having to ask questions like, what happens when the values in a community or cultural norms don't align with the way you've traditionally been thinking about the uh, values for your institution. And, and, and what do you do about that? Those are not easy questions, and they're not questions that have one answer, but I think the organizational change and internal reflection piece is so critical. <gasps>
1: Well, what that, that really, again, what I, uh, what you have said and I want to under, underscore is that traditionally we look out and we say, oh, we can reach that community if only they understood us better, uh, instead of saying, gee… Here is a community that we wish to serve because we wish to serve all of the communities in our uh in, in our 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 area of influence, our geographic area. Uh, how can we learn more about them? How can we be in dialogue? Uh I'm assuming, too, that this, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, challenging situations, that that also is the issue of, uh, of, of bringing uh, greater diversity and uh, representation of the community onto the staff and possibly the board. Oh,
2: absolutely. I think those two pieces are, are really, are really uh, part and parcel of that. And I think being willing to, uh, as an organization, uh, you know really really willing to look at where are the kinds of shifts that internally need to happen not nothing but technical practice um, that make an organization more inclusive right so there's a way in which serving the community is integrally tied to uh building an organization's level of cultural competence that that sort of has to happen um as part and parcel of that
1: um, we just have have one uh, a brief time if but but if you could give one piece of very concrete advice to the museum directors who are listening out there, what would be that one thing that they should one question that they should be asking themselves
2: that's a really good question. I think it comes down to uh, an issue of what Really, what what do you know about your communities, and in what ways are you very intentionally creating, uh, positioning yourself as a learning organization um, who is really willing to, sh- to learn and shift with that, um, regardless of what that might mean? Um, are you creating the kind of space that makes you a learning organization? Because I think if you don't do that, then... Um, It's going to be really a a tough road.
1: Great. Thank you, Cecilia. And thank you so much both uh, for coming on the show today and sharing some of your insights and for the continued work that you do. Uh, For those of uh, listeners uh, who want to uh, continue this conversation, you can reach Cecilia at GaribayGroup.com and also on uh, Twitter. Uh, Again, you can always reach me at carol.bossard at verizon.net. Let me know what uh, museum issues you would like to be uh, hearing on this show. Uh, Again, thank you very much, Cecilia, for your participation. And uh, we will be back next week with another uh, edition of Museum Life. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.